Good morning, Warhawks. You are listening to 91.7 The Edge, WSUW Whitewater. Ah, yes, it's that time of year again. It's election season, and today is the big day. Today is election day, so for the next hour, we're going to be discussing your favorite topic, voting. Because after you've been consistently bombarded with political ads and campaigns, I'm here to give you some relief and tell you what you actually need to know as you head into the voting booths today. During your favorite segment, Warhawk Weekly, I'm your host, McLean Nafke. Let's get started with the latest news here at UW-Whitewater. Your home for current campus news. All right, and before we dive in, let's take a step back and look at a short history of voting rights in the United States. The struggle for equal voting rights dates to the earliest days of U.S. history. Now, after a period of bipartisan efforts to expand enfranchisements, Americans once again face new obstacles to voting. Challenges to voting rights in this country, like the ones we've seen recently, are hardly a 21st century invention. Entrenched groups have long tried to keep the vote out of the hands of the less powerful. Indeed, America began its great Democrat democratic experiment in the late 1700s by granting the right to vote to a narrow subset of society, white male landowners. Even as barriers to voting began receding in the ensuing decades, many southern states erected new ones, such as poll taxes and literacy tests, aimed at keeping the vote out of the hands of African American men. Over time, voting rights became a bipartisan priority as people worked at all levels to enact constitutional amendments and laws expanding access to the vote based on race and ethnicity, gender, disability, age, and other factors. The landmark Voting Rights Act of 1965 passed by Congress took major steps to curtail voter suppression. Thus began a new era of push and pull of voting rights, with the voting age reduced to 18 from 21 and the enshrinement of voting protections for language minorities and people with disabilities. Greater voter enfranchisement was met with fresh resistance in the 2013. The Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in its ruling on Shelby County versus Holder, paving the way for states and jurisdictions with a history of voter suppression to enact restrictive voter identification laws. A whopping 23 states created new obstacles to voting in the decade leading up to the 2018 elections, according to the nonpartisan coalition Election Protection. These activities these activities have a demonstrable and disappropriation effect on populations that are already underrepresented at the polls. Adding to the problems, the government at all levels has largely failed to make the necessary investments in elections, from technology to poll worker training, to ensure the integrity and efficiency of the system. The, ninth, the 1700s. Voting was generally limited to white property holders. Despite their belief in the virtues of democracy, the founders of the United States accepted and endorsed several limits on voting. The U.S. Constitution originally left it to the states to determine who was qualified to vote in elections. For decades, state legislatures generally restricted voting to white males who owned property. Some states also employed religious tests to ensure that only Christian men could vote. The 1800s, official barriers to voting start to recede. During the early part of the 19th century, state legislatures began 
to limit the property requirement for voting. Later, during the Reconstruction period following the Civil War, Congress passed the 15th Amendment to the Constitution, which ensured that people could not be denied the right to vote because of their race. The amendment was ratified by the states in 1870. However, in the decades that followed, many states, particularly in the South, used a range of barriers such as poll taxes and literacy tests to deliberately reduce voting among African American men. 1920. Women win the right to vote. Early in the 20th century, women were still only able to vote in the handful of states. After decades of organizing and activism, women nationwide won the right to vote with the ratification of the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution in 1920. 1960. Southern states ramp up barriers to voting. The struggle for equal voting rights came to a head in the 1960s as many states, particularly in the South, dug in on policies such as literacy tests, poll taxes, English language requirements, and more, aimed at suppressing the vote among people of color, immigrants, and low-income populations. In March 1965, activists organized protest marches from Selma, Alabama to the state capital of Montgomery to spotlight the issue of black voting rights. The first march was brutally attacked by police and others on a day that came to be known as Bloody Sunday. After a second march was cut short, a throng of thousands finally made the journey, arriving at Montgomery on March 24th and drawing nationwide attention to the issue. 1964, the 24th Amendment targets poll taxes. Poll taxes were a particularly egregious form of voter suppression for a century following the Civil War, forcing people to pay money in order to vote. Payment of the tax was a prerequisite for voter registration in many states. The taxes were expressly designed to keep African Americans and low-income white people from voting. Some states even enacted grandfather clauses to allow many higher-income white people to avoid paying the tax. The 24th Amendment was approved by Congress in 1962 and ratified by the states two years later. In 1966 case, a Supreme Court ruled that poll taxes are unconstitutional in any U.S. election. 1965, the Voting Rights Act passes Congress. Inspired by voting rights marches in Alabama in spring 1965, Congress passed the Voting Rights Act. The vote was decisive and bipartisan. 79 to 18 in the Senate and 328 to 74 in the House. President Lyndon Johnson signed the measure on August 6 with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, and other icons of the civil rights movement at his side. In addition to bearing many of the policies and practices that states have been using to limit voting among African Americans and other targeted groups, the Voting Rights Act included provisions that required states and local jurisdictions with a historical pattern of suppressing voting rights based on race to submit changes in their election laws to the U.S. Department of Justice for approval. In ensuing decades, the preclearance provisions provide to be a remarkably effective means of discouraging state and local officials from erecting new barriers to voting, stopping the most egregious policies from going forward, and providing communities and civil rights advocates with advance notice of proposed changes that might suppress the vote. 1971, Young People Win the Vote For much of the nation's history, states generally restricted voting to people aged 21 and older. But during the 1960s, the movement in Lower the Voting Age gained steam with the rise of student activism in the war in Vietnam, which was fought largely by young 18 and over draftees. The 26th Amendment prohibited states and the federal government from using age as a reason to deny the vote to anyone 18 years of age and over. 
1975, Voting Rights Acts expanded to protect large minorities. Congress added new provisions to the Voting Rights Act to protect members of language minority groups. The amendments require jurisdictions with significant numbers of voters who have limited or no proficiency in English to provide voting materials in other languages and to provide multilingual assistance at the polls. 1982, Congress requires new voting protections for people with disabilities. Congress passed a law extending the Voting Rights Act for another 25 years. As part of the extension, Congress required states to take steps to make voting more accessible for the elderly and people with disabilities. 1993, Motor Voter Becomes Law. Responding to historically low rates of voter registration, Congress passed the National Voter Registration Act, also known as Motor Voter. The law required states to allow citizens to register to vote when they applied for a driver's license. The law also required states to offer mail-in registration and to allow people to register to vote at offices offering public assistance. In the first year of its implementation, more than 300 million people completed their voter registration applications or updated their registration through means available because of the law. 2000. Election problems spotlight the need for reform. The extremely close Bush-Gore presidential race led to a recount in the state of Florida that highlighted many of the problems plaguing U.S. elections, from faulty equipment and bad ballot design to inconsistent rules and procedures across local jurisdictions and states. The U.S. Supreme Court ultimately intervened to stop the Florida recount and effectively ensured the election of George W. Bush. 2002, Congress passes the Help America Vote Act. With memories of the problems of the 2000 election still fresh in everyone's mind, Congress passed the Help America Vote Act in 2002 with the goal of streamlining election procedures across the nation. The law placed new mandates on states and localities to replace outdated voting equipment, create statewide voter registration lists, and provide provisional ballots to ensure that eligible voters are not turned away if their names are not on the roll of registered voters. The law also was designed to make it easier for people with disabilities to cast private, independent ballots. 2010. Philanthropy embraces the need for reform. Along with a core group of other funders, the Carnegie Corporation of New York began investing in voting rights and elections work in the United States in the 1970s and 1980s. However, it wasn't until the early years of the 21st century that funders started to work more intentionally together in their support of voting rights. A key vehicle for collective funder action on these issues is the State Infrastructure Fund, a collaborative fund administered by NEO Philanthropy. The fund was created in 2010 and has raised more than $56 million from an expanding list of funders to invest in advanced voting rights and expanding voting among historically underrepresented communities. June 2013, the Supreme Court strikes a blow to the Voting Rights Act. In its June ruling in the case Shelby County v. Holder, the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act. Because of the court's decision, states and localities with a history of suppressing voting rights no longer were required to submit changes in their election laws to the U.S. Justice Department for review. The 5-4 decision ruled unconstitutional a section of the landmark 1965 law that was key to protecting voters in states and localities with a history of race-based voter suppression. In her dissent in the case, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg famously stated, throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. August 2013, 
states ramp up barriers to voting. On August 11th, North Carolina's governor signed a voter identification law seen by many as an attempt to suppress the votes of people of color. The North Carolina law was just one of many similar laws passed in the wake of the Supreme Court's June 2013 Shelby ruling. Texas officials, in fact, acted on the same day of the Shelby decision to institute a strict voter identification law that previously had been blocked under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act because of its impact in suppressing the vote of low-income people and racial minorities. After a lawsuit filed by civil rights groups and the U.S. Department of Justice, the North Carolina law was struck down by a federal judge who said it targeted African Americans with almost surgical precision. Officials in Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, and Virginia shortly joined the ranks of the intent on exercising their newly won power to turn back the clock to an earlier time when election laws and practices in many places were marked by blatant discrimination and racism. 2014, the voting rights movement coalesces to fight suppression. In response to post-Shelby assaults on voting rights, Voting rights organizations across the county stepped up their work to protect and advance the right to vote and move us closer to the vision of a nation of, by, and for the people. This work includes litigation to challenge unconstitutional barriers to voting, on-the-ground advocacy to advance pro-voter policies at the local and state levels, and nonpartisan efforts to register, educate, and mobilize historically underrepresented populations so they can participate more actively in elections and civic life. The State Infrastructure Fund began convening a cohort of nonprofit public interest litigation groups with the aim of streamlining and coordinating the field's response to a fresh new wave of policies to suppress the vote. Coordinated by the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, the collaboration of 12 organizations has played an essential role in pushing back against strict voter identification laws, racial gerrymandering, and other tactics aimed at reducing the voting rights of underrepresented populations. 2016, Presidential Election and Claims of Fraud After President Trump was elected despite losing the popular vote, he and his supporters made claims that large numbers of people voted illegally. A Washington Post analysis was able to find only four documented cases of voter fraud in the 2016 election out of the 135 million ballots cast. The narrative about fraud ultimately resulted in President Trump convening the Presidential Commission on Election Integrity, which disbanded in January 2018 without presenting any evidence or findings. Continued false claims of rampant voter fraud have added fuel to the fire and prompted even bolder efforts to suppress the vote. Adding to the problems, the government at all levels has largely failed to make the necessary investments in elections, from technology to poll worker training, to ensure the integrity and efficiency of the electoral system. October 2018, state and local officials keep erecting new barriers to voting continue. A 2018 USA Today analysis found that election officials recently have closed thousands of polling places with a disproportionate impact on communities of color. The polling place closures are just one example of how states and localities have continued to try to suppress the votes of targeted populations. In 2018, for example, the Georgia Senate passed bills cutting voter hours in Atlanta, where African Americans are 54% of the population, and restricting early voting on weekends. The latter measure was seen by many as a not-so-subtle attempt to target nonpartisan Souls to the Polls events organized by black churches to get their parishioners to vote on Sunday after church. Both Georgia measures were subsequently defeated in the state assembly. November 2018, election draws record numbers of voters, but problems remain. 
According to early estimates, 116 million voters, nearly half the eligible voting population, cast ballots in the 2018 elections. Not only did voter turnout set a 100-year record for midterm races, but the election saw record numbers of women and candidates of color running at all levels. In addition, voters approved a number of important state ballot measures aimed at expanding the electorate and making it easier to vote, including a law in Florida that lifts the permanent ban on voting for people with a felony criminal record. The numbers for 2018 were especially impressive given that many states continue to take aggressive steps to make it harder for people to vote. According to the nonpartisan coalition Election Protection, 23 states created new obstacles to voting in the decade preceding the 2018 election. 2019, voting rights groups prepare for the 2020 census and redistricting. In the same way that partisan interests and those in power have used voting rights laws and policies to suppress the vote, they have also attempted to use the U.S. Census and the subsequent congressional redistricting process to advance their political goals. The Trump administration, for example, fought unsuccessfully for two years to add a question to the 2020 census asking if someone is a citizen of the United States. Voting rights and civil rights groups said that this was a transparent attempt to instill fear in immigrant communities, with the result of undercounting the immigration population and reducing its political power and voice. Other concerns about the 2020 census include chronic underfunding for the work of accurately counting everyone in the nation. To the extent that the census cuts corners, there is a well-funded belief that it will result in an undercount of already underrepresented populations, including low-income populations and people of color. And now that I've given you a brief history of voting rights in the United States, we're going to look after a quick music break. Welcome back to Warhawk Weekly. I'm your host, McClay Navke, and today is Election Day, so get out and exercise your right to vote. But before you head into the voting booths, let's take a look at one of the major referendums set to appear on the Whitewater Citizens' Docket. Today, voters in the city of Whitewater will be asked whether or not to increase the property tax levy to support the city's share of EMS staffing improvements to go from paid on-call staffing to on-site paid on-premise staffing for ambulance and fire coverage. While the referendum docket does ask the taxpayers to approve an increase to the city's budget for the fire EMS service, the net effect on most taxpayers will be a reduction in total tax bills in comparison to 2022. Due to the additions, to an increased tax base and other factors, the effects of the referendum can be absorbed in a way that does not ask taxpayers to pay more total taxes than the previous year. This does take into account increasing property values and all other taxing jurisdictions as well. To repeat, the city's referendum will can be approved and the result will be faster, higher quality ambulance and fire services for all residents and visitors without asking for more money from most individual taxpayers than the previous year. Whitewater Fire and EMS provide fire and EMS services to the city and town of Whitewater and the towns of Cold Spring, Koshkanong, Lima Center and Richmond. Under the proposed EMS staffing recommendations, each community would pay its fair share of $1.48 million, an increase calculation that takes into account the equalized value of a community and a five-year average of EMS call volume would be $1.1 million. This provides a continuation of the 24-7 ambulance coverage which the city has been running since June 2022 using cash reserves to fund the service through the referendum. 
for decades prior, fire and EMS response relied on a paid on-call staffing model. This model, which depends on on-call staff to leave their homes or jobs to respond first to the station, then to the incident, is no longer providing an adequate level of service to Whitewater. In 2021, a large number of EMS calls were answered by a neighboring community, resulting in longer response times for Whitewater residents. We experience more than 2,000 calls per year, of which over 1,600 require an ambulance service. If approved, the increased funding would support up to 17 full-time paid on-premise firefighters and EMS. 17 full-time staff would make it possible to have a fully funded on-site EMS response 24-7, helping to address increased calls for service, surging response times, and a lack of available paid on-call staff. All right, you guys, now I've given you a brief history of voting. I've given you all of your 2022 election candidates, and I've given you the latest referendum on the docket. So now what? Well, now it's time for you to go out and vote. Here's everything you need to know about voting in this year's election. So why is it so important to vote? Well, it's your chance to have your voice heard. According to www.census.gov, the age group with the lowest voting rates are adults aged 18 to 29. That means that a lot of college students probably are not voting. The reason may be because of lack of understanding of how to register and how to vote. For UWW students living on campus, the place to go to vote is the old main ballroom in the University Center. The Armory downtown on 146 West North Street is an option for anyone to go to as well. Not sure if you registered? Visit mydotevote.wi.gov backslash register dash to dash vote and enter your information to see if you're already registered. If not, you can use that same white to web website to register. There are resources on campus for students who wish to get involved in the political world. Two organizations you may want to check out are the College Democrats and College Republicans. Let's talk about deadlines. Unfortunately, the last day to register for the November 8th election by mail or online has passed, but you can still register in person on the day of the election. Please visit www.uww.edu backslash vote for any remaining questions you may have about voting as a student. As I've mentioned before, young voters are the least likely to vote. So let's talk about nine reasons you need young voters more than ever. Young voters notoriously neglect the importance of voting, but their voice is an important one on both sides of the aisle. Key issues in every election increasingly relate to the concerns of students and professionals between ages of 18 and 29, making it essential for members within that age group to educate themselves on political issues and take to the polls. While millennials represented nearly 50% of the entire voter population in the 2016 election, they were further divided along race, gender, and education lines when considering key issues from both candidates. So why is it important to vote, especially if you fall within the crucial age demographic? 1. Young voters account for half of the voting population, making them a powerful political force. The youth vote has the potential to be extremely influential in this country. While young voter participation in 2016 declined by 2% from a record 52% at the 2008 election, today the voting population includes almost equal parts millennials and baby boomers. As the boomer electorate decreases in size, experts suggest it is nearly a matter of time before millennials become the largest and most powerful group driving future elections in the U.S. Unfortunately, not all who can vote will, meaning that fewer young people get to directly influence issues that might affect their lives for years to come, including college tuition reform and federal job programs. Two, 
yet older Americans are more likely to vote. While young people make a large portion of the voting eligible population, they're much less likely than those who are older to get out and vote. In 2016, only 19% of people aged 18 to 29 cast their ballot in the presidential election. At 49%, 45 to 64 year olds accounted for the largest electorate last year. Some reports have attributed the outcome of the election to a missed opportunity on the part of millennials to affect change in mass. While the majority of young voters actually cast ballots for Hillary Clinton, their low turnout was not enough to counter the ballots of older voters. For this, researchers are increasingly interested in methods of successfully mobilizing young voter groups. Duke University recently initiated an innovative project designing policy reform to increase turnout among the youth. Three. Every vote counts. Many young people cite feelings as though their vote doesn't matter as their reason for not participating in elections. Millennials reported feeling especially disillusioned by both presidential candidates before the election in 2016, and many chose to sit out altogether as a result. In an American divided perhaps more than ever, every vote counts, especially those from one of the country's largest voting groups. President Barack Obama's election in 2008 is an example of this theory in motion, as his popularity with youth voters was one of the key elements of his campaign, giving him a large margin over competitors in a number of strategic states. Other elections in recent years have come down to just a few votes. Proving your vote does matter, maybe more than you realize. 4. Young people were hit hardest by the Great Recession college debt and the lack of jobs dealt some of the most crippling blows to the financial futures of many young voters after the Great Recession in the late 2000s. Though unemployment rates have declined and millennials have found their footing in a new economy, policy change and reform in areas affecting college students, such as debt forgiveness and health care, are a crucial now as they were in the 2008 election. The situation won't be changed by sitting idle while others make political decisions. Youth voters who want to inspire change need to show their support for the candidates whom they feel best represent their needs. No one else is going to vote in the interest of young people except young people. 5. Young voters are an incredibly diverse group. The divisive nature of partisan politics is alive and well among young voters in today's world. So much so that the millennial electorate is expected to be the first demographic group with the ability to change the basic two-party system, potentially driving the need for alternative political parties that millennials feel can represent the needs of a diverse population through a more inclusive agenda. The same young adults in 2016 who were more likely to identify as liberals were also less likely to identify as Democrats. Currently, millennials are the most diverse voting group. Also of note, at 35%, a higher percentage of young voters identified as independent political views other than Republican or Democrat than in the past three presidential elections. 6. Young people need to connect with politics early on. Participating in politics is a hard-won right in our nation. Some experts argue that young Americans with such potential for affecting political change don't exercise the right to vote as often as they should. Many even suggest that the voting age should be lowered in an effort to promote earlier voting among teenagers and young adults. Building a relationship with the political process as early as possible is key to making voting a lifelong habit. You may already be familiar with the phrase, vote early, vote often. If you're historically a repeat voter, you're much less likely to skip a trip to the polls in the future. 
This sort of habit-forming participation is key to driving policy and electing leaders who represent the needs of voters of all ages. 7. It's easier than ever to be an educated voter. In today's tech-savvy world, there is no excuse not to vote because you don't know enough about the candidates. In fact, one might find it harder to escape day-to-day political news than subscribe to it. In an era in which Twitter is the preferred means of communication for the President of the United States, Instagram, YouTube, and Snapchat have become a crucial as the candidates' own websites for disseminating information about relevant issues. As this type of civic education is everything, is typical for most Americans today. It isn't just beneficial in the months leading up to the election, but also on a day-to-day basis. The current online climate allows young voters to form a fuller picture of the candidates and their platforms in a medium they're familiar with. 8. The youth vote can sway the election. As mentioned before, your vote does matter, so much so that the collective youth vote could actually sway the election. Millennials have been credited with the decision vote in the 2012 election of Barack Obama for the second term as president. Obama won 67% of the national youth vote, proving more popular in crucial states such as Florida, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Idaho, while his opponent Mitt Romney. In 2016, candidates campaigned hard for the 18-29 to 29 set, singling out initiatives to target millennials as a powerful electorate group. Why? Because they understand the necessity of winning approval for the voting majority. 9. You may not care now, but you might in four years. You may feel that choosing a president or a senator just isn't something that affects your life right now. You might yet be struggling with issues like college debt or finding a full-time job. For many millennials, adulthood brings many new challenges like college, marriage, buying a house, paying for your own health care, and starting a business all of which could radically change your perspective on political issues. While you can't predict who or where you'll be in four years, you can be sure that the political officials elected into office and the policies they implement will affect your life in the coming months and years. Why not have a say? Speak up, make a choice, and take part in the election to protect your interests in your first few years in the real world. So how can you get involved and how can you vote? No matter your age or voting history, The first step in getting involved should be to check your voter status. Research how to register to vote in your state if you are not. If you are already registered in your state but have recently moved, you will need to update your address in order to provide current registration at your local polling place on election day. Some states now make it possible for you to register to vote online, though traditionally voters must register by mail or in person. You can, however, change your address online or via text message in some states, as well as search for polling places near you online. Some states allow voting by mail or for local, state, and even presidential elections. Students who are studying abroad or traveling during the election and thus not in their home state or even in the U.S. must request an absentee ballot through the federal postcard application form. Although they are requesting an absentee ballot from outside of their home state or country, the student must still be registered to vote in their state of residence to be eligible to vote in the U.S. election while away. Well, folks, that is going to be all the time we have for this week's edition of Warhawk Weekly. Thanks for joining me today, and as one last reminder, get out today and vote. I've given you everything you need to know. I've given you all the information, so now you have no excuse. Until next week, I hope you guys have a happy election day, and stay tuned to 91.7 The Edge, WSUW Whitewater. Now let's get back to the music.